Will you please stand for the reading of the word? Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Rebecca is going to read the scripture and I'm going to share a few words to hopefully help us connect our hearts and minds with the story today. You know, during the time of Jesus, farming in the Holy Land was a challenging task, right? We know that there were no tractors and not all farmers possessed the means to own lots of animals to help them. Uh, But also the climate and the land were not unlike what we have here in West Texas, which means uncertainty for farmers, Uh, One Jewish writer who was alive at the time of Jesus described the land of Israel as rich in soil and pastures and producing a variety of trees. And the land of Judea and Samaria were made up of hills and plains that had a light and fertile soil for agriculture, well-wooded and abounding in fruits. But the land across the Jordan was, for the most part, desert and rugged and too wild to bring tender fruits to maturity. So it kind of depended on where you lived. But also, scholars estimate that the average family farm in those days was about the size of half a football field. And you were supposed to raise enough crops on half a football field to feed your family for a whole year. Besides that, there were many other factors that influenced how well a farmer could succeed, right? Political policies, wars that might take workers away, and of course, periods of drought. Even though the land could produce crops, there were all sorts of reasons that it might not. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seeds in his field. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the weeds and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in the field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds, you will uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So this farmer had weeds taking nourishment and water from his valuable crops, right? And that was surely a threat. Well, as it happens, just a little ways north of here in the panhandle of Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas, just a few decades ago, farmers experienced one of the worst agricultural disasters in the history of our country. It's known as the Dust Bowl era because what had been the prairies of middle America turned into literal fields of dust, From our perspective, we can see why this happened, right? Settlers came in the late 1800s. They plowed under the prairie grasses to plant crops like wheat. They lived in one place rather than moving from one to another, and they didn't rotate their crops, and so they ended up overusing the soil. And the cattle and the other animals overgrazed the grasslands that were available. And eventually, the land became bare of plants, and the winds of the Great Plains that we know so well just blew the topsoil away. Well, you combine that with a terrible drought that began in 1930, right when the Great Depression was beginning to take hold, and you've got a recipe for disaster. Scientists and agriculture specialists have learned a lot from the disaster of the Dust Bowl era, which is wonderful. What will we gain from the disaster that threatened this farmer's crops? 
Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds on the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteousness will, righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks God. Please be seated. I don't want to spend a lot of time as we talk about uh, parables talking about parables. Um, I think we'll do an injustice if we engage some sort of literary criticism to teach us how to explain what Jesus expects us to understand. Except for this. Uh, Parables are meant in part to surprise us, to to sideswipe you with the truth as it's coming. You never quite see it. It's like the story of Nathan and, and, and King David. King David had cheated on his wife and gotten into a whole bunch of trouble. And so far he had been successful of, of covering it all up so that he could marry Bathsheba and bring her into his house. But God knew. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to speak truth to the king. The problem is speaking truth to power doesn't always go so well for prophets. And so as Nathan approaches, he tells David a a parable. And David is captivated, fully grabbed into the story that Nathan tells him about a rich man and a poor man and a lamb. And then David is surprised by the story. And that Astonishment leads to repentance. So here's the thesis of the text that I want to offer us today. I want us to be surprised by the text. And to do that, I want to tell you three stories that will help us to feel that surprise. Stories about an argument over a pig that resulted in the death of over 60 people. Stories about why some church leaders are arguing the U.S. should stop missionary work altogether. And why the American educational system is the best in the world. And I think, if I've done my job right, by the end of this sermon, you're going to feel surprise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful to be gathered together whether we're in this room or online across the world, we are grateful that you have brought us to this place. I'm grateful for Ryan and his family traveling to be with, here with us for a few weeks to, to rest and recuperate and recharge himself for the work that he does. Father, I pray that you would bless this time as we open your word together, that you would pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, 
Amen. Okay, so what, what shouldn't surprise you in this story is the fact that this farmer has weeds growing in his plot. I mean, that is inevitable. Anybody that's ever tried to start a garden of any sort knows that weeds are going to appear. You can't help that. Weeds choke out the sunlight for the plants that you want, and they're hungry for the resources and the nutrients, and, and, and stump the growth of what could have been to your sweet little tomato plants. And in frustration, you might invoke Jesus' words, shaking your fist to the heavens. An enemy has done this. But one of the things that should surprise us about this story is that farmers don't usually, typically, have enemies. Shepherds do, but farmers don't. And this is why I want to tell you the story about an argument over a pig that resulted in the death of 60 different people. It's a story that you've heard of that um, Stephen Dubner, he asked this interesting question. It's a story of two families that entered into a blood feud on the border of Kentucky and West Virginia. You may know the two families that I've been talking about. It's the Hatfields and the McCoys. It actually started a little bit earlier in the Civil War where someone murdered someone else. But really the focus is about a pig that was stolen. And some people claim that pig just kind of swam across the river on its own because it wanted to be part of the McCoys and not the Hatfields. But that that story makes us doubt. Stephen Dubner asked the question, now why did this blood feud happen in Kentucky and West Virginia, and why didn't it happen in Massachusetts or Connecticut? And he does some research, and he goes back to the fact that most of the area, Appalachian area, which um, is settled by folks that were in Scotland or Ireland, and most of the folks in New England were settled by folks that lived in southern, or New England were settled by folks that lived in southern Eng New Eng England, and most of the people in southern England that settled in New England were farmers, and most of the people that settled in Appalachia were shepherds or herdsmen. And there's a pretty significant difference between those two types of people. A herdsman has to protect the flock, like David. Protect the flock from animals, wolves, lions that might attack, but also it's, it's pretty easy to steal a flock of sheep. You just go into that other place at night, open the gate, usher all the sheep out, take them to your own place, and now they're your sheep. It's easy to steal cattle. Cattle wrestlers are kind of a history, uh, part of the history of West Texas. It's a little more difficult to steal an acre of corn for obvious reasons. First of all, there's only this very small window where there's any point of stealing that corn at any way. You could go a month too early, you take all the corn, and all you got is just a bunch of plants. You don't have any fruit. The other side of that that makes it difficult is that farmers have to cooperate because farmers, if you want a barn, you can't build it by yourself. You're going to need other farmers to help you. When it's time to do uh, to the reaping, you need help to get it accomplished because if you don't get it done fast enough, your grain will rot. And so it's kind of unusual that a farmer would have an enemy. Now, if this story had begun, a shepherd was out guarding his flock and an enemy came to nobody in the first century or in our time would be surprised. The Hatfield and McCoy feud 
lasted for over 70 years, so much so that people in, in the, the families couldn't even identify themselves the source of the argument, why it started. It escalated between an illicit marriage, between the clans that went wrong. And it's been picked up in media all over the place for the last hundred years. There's over a dozen movies that have been made to talk about the Hatfield and McCoy fight. And he's even picked up in this kind of regional amusement park called Silver Dollar City, which is in Branson, Missouri. Which Branson, Missouri, by the way, is just kind of like the front part of a Cracker Barrel turned into a city. Right? If you want to know what Branson is, that's, that's basically what it is. And they have this amusement park there. It's got great rides. And, but their little, like, shtick that they have running is a bunch of hillbillies. And by the way, a hillbilly and a redneck are not the same thing. Do not make that mistake. Um, uh, but these hillbillies that kind of get into these dramatic arguments around the park. And so where at Disneyland, you might go and see Mickey Mouse. Here, you might run into a Hatfield or a McCoy. But as I was at Silver Dollar City recently, I saw this unusual thing, and it made me have a pause. It was this drinking fountain, and on the drinking fountain, it said, McCoy's only, no Hatfields. And apparently this drinking fountain plays into one of the narratives that the actors play out. And it's, it's part of the redemption part of that story, how they kind of make peace together. But even the idea of a drinking fountain with any sort of only thing gave me pause. And I just had to wonder, like, did the people of Silver Dollar City realize how close they are treading to some really bad ideas? The surprise in this text is that the farmer has an enemy. The second surprise is that the farmer doesn't do anything about it. The workers go to the farmer and they say, hey, do you want us to tear out all these weeds that someone has sown into your field in the middle of the night? And the farmer wisely, like H.L. Minchkin, says, nah. Minchkin says, for every complex problem, there is an answer that is neat, that is plausible, and is wrong. And we know how this works on a global scale and a personal scale. That there are always going to be unintended consequences for every action that you choose. And it makes it difficult to choose any action. There's, there's going to be a missile strike intended for enemy forces that kill innocent civilians. Or a reform policy requiring work for welfare, which makes sense because it's avoiding some sort of graft or laziness, leaves single parents without options for childcare. And discerning motives is equally difficult. A large gift from a wealthy donor, it may be to aid people in need or to elevate his own position in the politics. The reality is that good and evil intentions can resemble each other so closely that God is the only one that can tell them apart. Wheat and weeds grow too closely to be dealt with separately. And so the wise farmer says, don't do anything, just wait. But this is even true when you're trying to do, to do the good thing, to do the right thing, even when there's nothing but healthy motives involved. Like you send clothes to a third world country because those people need clothes and it ends up tanking part of the economy there that was trying to create garments. 
Or in my own experience, sending teens to Mexico to build houses or build retaining walls for the churches that were down there. And those walls are so poorly built and houses that could be made cheaper and more efficiently by local skilled labor helping the economy in that area. This is true of kind of U.S. missions in the 70s and 80s, which leads us to the second interesting part of this story. That there are some church leaders that are arguing that the U.S. should stop mission work altogether. And basically that's because in the 70s and 80s, missionary efforts into the, from the West to the global South created unstable church structures, unsustainable church structures. It created this dependence on the West, not only as a source of financial means, but also a source of, of wisdom and scriptural interpretation or even a sense of agency. I've heard stories of, of missionaries that went to Africa and the local people that lived there said, brother, what do you feel about the controversy in Tulsa over the Texas or the, the Tulsa soul winning workshop? And my friend just scratched their head. How in the world did that conversation get all the way to Africa? Churches with good intentions built hospitals they were completely unaffordable without the West's continuing involvement. And when the resources in the West dried up, the African churches were left hanging. It's even a matter of, of, of will or agency. I've got a friend that works in Ghana, and he said one time in the capital city, someone saw a Tesla driving through. And his friend, the African, shook his head and said, look at what the Americans can do. And my friend wanted to rip his hair out and said, so can we. But in some ways, the colonial effort of the 70s and 80s from the West to the global South created this sense of lack of agency. Even when we try to do the good that we believe is the right thing, there's going to be unintended consequences. And so the right answer is to think, okay, how do we do this differently? How do we engage the gospel in, in new and meaningful ways that will undercut or at least uh, lessen the impact that we have already know of the mistakes that we had? But the reality of that is we know that there are going to be other unintended consequences that we're all going to have to face there. Because the reality is you don't know. You don't know what's going to be a weed and what's going to bear fruit. You don't know who's going to end up president and who might end up in prison. You can't tell. Which is why, by the way, the American educational system, for all of its flaws, remains the source of innovation, creative innovation, throughout the world. This is why many nations around the world send their children to the U.S. to learn. Because, in part, part of that reason is because the U.S. educational system refuses to judge. And I want to compare that for just a minute to the, the way the educational system formed in, in Europe, in, in the European Union. 
The European Union has a different way of testing students as they're going through school. Now, I know American systems has its own problems, but the, the way that this works is about the fifth grade, you take a test, and if you do well, you kind of get channeled into a one school, and if you don't do well, you get channeled into another school, and then about in eighth or ninth grade, you take another test, and you get channeled into a school, and you kind of sort it as you go along. American system, by and large, doesn't engage in this <coughs> practice. You go to the school based on the neighborhood that you live in. And some of the kids at your school are going to be bright, and some of the kids that uh, are at your school are going to be gifted in music, and some of them are going to be gifted in other ways. The nice thing about the educational system in America is that it doesn't judge fifth graders, doesn't place them on paths that might determine their future. We wait to see what the fruit will grow. But this isn't always the case. In San Jose, where I used to live, there was one private school that was the premier private school in the entire city of 1.2 million people. And if you take the area, it was a very, it was the Harker School. It was, it, was, it was amazing. The tuition there for a, a second grader was higher than the tuition to go to the UC programs. It was very expensive. But if your child was bright and if your child was brilliant and if your child was imaginative and creative in an unbearable way, unimaginable way, then you could have a scholarship. But the best way to get into the Harker schools was to be seated in about a dozen private elementary schools. Some of them were Montessori. Some of them were gifted in other ways. There were lots of different ways to talk about that. And the only way to really to guarantee your position into those private schools was to get into the right preschool. And I distinctly remember this conversation that I had with a friend of mine who had signed up their child who was three months old for the preschool of their choice, hoping to get into this preschool. And they were thoroughly disappointed because they were so low on the waiting list they would never be able to attend. They should have signed that baby up before it was born. And I said, well, it's, it's going to be okay. There's lots of other preschools. No, my friends responded. Their life is already over. If they don't get into Harker, they can't get into Harvard. If they don't get into Harvard. And, and on, one level, on one level, they might be right. But on another level... We don't know. We don't know what's going to become a weed, and we don't know what's going to become a wheat. We can't tell which plants are going to provide food and which ones are going to become thistles. And this is the reason why every longitudinal study in the world was ever created, is to try to figure out these questions so that we can tell, so that we can rig the system, so that we can get our children into the right preschool, so that we can bomb the right location so that we can provide the right service to the right place to help the right people. But you just can't tell. Adam Elkhart, Erkhart tells a story about um, when he as a grown man took his, his mom to the Christmas Eve service at his church. And his, his mom was kind of a, a teetotaler and uh, grew up in the, a certain generation. And, but next to them, sitting next to them at the Christmas Eve service was, was an older gentleman who seemed a little bit disheveled. And, and occasionally, he, Adam said, he, I thought the man had a tick, but then he realized that the man was, just, was drinking from a flask. 
And he was worried immediately in that moment because it was just going to be this awkward system situation between his, his mom and this man and him kind of caught in the middle. And so he experiences this moment of grace when she leans over and she says to Adam, that man is exactly where he needs to be tonight. And here's the surprise in that story. Because while she is right, she's also wrong. That man was in the right place where he needed to be tonight. But the truth, Adam reflects, is so was she. We all are. The church is exactly the place where it needs to be because at its base level, the gospel is always honest with us and it tells us who we are, that we are part weed and part wheat and we are wholly reliant on God's grace. And this is a parable I wish we were less confident in its interpretation. Even though Jesus takes the time to explain exactly how this thing plays out and how it's going to work out, I wish we were a little less confident in its meaning because figuring out who the weeds are is a pretty dangerous game. And it's not a tone-deaf joke about the McCoy-only drinking fountain in a theme park because it's the reality of the misshapen justice of real water fountains that existed in our past and the less noticeable water fountains that still exist in our present. But this parable reminds us, it reveals to us, it surprises us with the truth that God's kingdom is patient. God's kingdom is humble. And God's kingdom is waiting. And maybe just what maybe, God's kingdom is waiting for me and for us and for the world to bear the fruit that we so desperately need to see. Uh, if you will, please stand for our benediction. I want to invite our prayer team forward. They're going to be available for you. If you have any prayer that you need uh, this week, they would love to talk with you. If there's a burden that you're feeling in your heart, they would love to, to sit with you for a moment, whether it's right after this service or if you want to find one of our shepherds later this week, they would be delighted to share a cup of coffee with you uh, and talk with you about whatever your needs are. Let me send you with this benediction today. To be part of God's kingdom means that you wait. It means that you don't assume that you know who is who or what's what. And so I want to encourage you this week, don't judge. Don't decide. Wait in expectation to be surprised by God. Because who know what God can do with a little bit of wheat and even a few weeds. Go in peace.